Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Rambling with Ryu. I'm Bean. And I'm Nancy. So today we're going to be talking with Tommy Suter, who is researching respiratory strength training, and he's got a lot of experience with activity-based training as well. So thank you, Tommy, for joining us. We're super excited to be talking to you today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. So I guess I'll just get you to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what led you to this field. It's a little bit of a convoluted story, I guess. I always was interested in sports and really like strength sports. I was a thrower in track and field in high school and college and wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach or a track and field coach, you know, when I when I grew up, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I got a bachelor's degree first in exercise science and then eventually a master's degree in exercise science. And after I was done with my master's degree, I was looking for jobs and I found a job posting for an activity-based training center out in California. I was living in New Jersey at the time in the United States, so the opposite coast. And it was a, a job for a, an activity-based trainer, you know, a specialized trainer for working with people with spinal cord injuries using specialized techniques. And it was a part-time position. So I thought to myself, wow, that's really cool. I bet I would like that, but I'm not moving to California for a part-time job. And the next day, my girlfriend at the time who became my wife, she actually found a job posting for a similar gym right in New Jersey near where I was living. So I went and I checked it out, interviewed, got the job, and I thought, all right, well, this will be a cool way to make money until I get that strength and conditioning or throws coaching job. But it was about a month into working at Push to Walk was the name of the gym in New Jersey that my focus really began to shift because as much as I was interested in strength and conditioning, strength athletics and all that, I always kind of had this thing, this thought in the back of my mind that, you know, okay, is is the purpose of my life really going to be to take somebody who is, you know, an elite human and make them more elite. You know, on my deathbed, do I want to say what I did with my life was I took a football player who could squat 500 pounds and I got him to squat 510. You know, <laughs> so so that kind of feeling was always kind of hanging over me. And so when I got to push to walk, I realized like, wait a minute, I have this set of knowledge that could be useful for people, but it could make a real difference, you know, in people's lives. So I could put this knowledge to use for people who needed it more than an able-bodied athlete that just wanted to get better at their sport. So I worked at Push to Walk for four years and got a lot of experience as a trainer, got a lot of experience running a team of trainers, went to a lot of conferences, uh, was lucky enough to live in a, a fairly densely populated area of the country where I got to meet and interact with a lot of researchers and just did all of the reading that I can. And the more I got into all of that, both reading the research and training people, the more I realized there are a lot of unanswered questions as to what is actually going on with these activity-based training interventions we're doing with people. You know, we know there's a benefit, but we don't necessarily know why. Mm -hmm. And I thought more and more, it's important to know why, because as I'm sure you guys have seen at Ryu and plenty of other people have seen at different gyms, Some people see amazing results from activity-based training, and some people see either not as good results or they'll see health benefits, but not necessarily functional benefits. So, you know, it's a wide spectrum of what people really get out of it. And the more and more I looked into the research, the more and more I found nothing (laughs) as as to answering the questions that I wanted answered. And so eventually I realized that I couldn't convince any researchers around me to partner with us to try and get some studies done to answer these questions. So it was in 2015 that my wife and daughter and I packed our bags and we moved down to Florida so I could begin the rehabilitation science PhD program at the University of Florida. And I got my, I finished that program last year under the mentorship of Dr. Emily Fox and completed a dissertation looking at, mostly looking at breathing, but also looking at a little bit of other functions and trying to understand how some functions change after spinal cord injury and what particular interventions may be able to do for them. And now that I've finished that, I've actually, 
I've stayed in Gainesville for a little bit in where the University of Florida is, and I'm working in the lab of Dr. Joshua Yarrow, studying muscle and bone rehabilitation after spinal cord injury. It's been, like I said, a little bit of a twisted journey, but I like it so far. Very cool. Well, congratulations on graduating, I guess, again, then. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so today we're going to go based off of a little bit of your research, and we're going to talk about uh, yeah, respiratory strength training, like Bean said. So we know that spinal cord injury uh, individuals have an increased risk of respiratory infection. And now with COVID-19, we thought we'd talk about it a little bit more and just address people's concerns and why respiratory strength training is, you know, something that we should be looking at within activity-based training centers. So let's dive into the how and why of respiration. How do we breathe? So, Tommy, if you want to talk a little bit about uh, the muscles we use of inspiration, the mechanics, and kind of what moves when. Right. So there, there's two phases to breathing. There's the inspiratory and the expiratory phase. And so to get to your question, Nancy, when it comes to inspiration in particular, the muscle that primarily drives inspiration is the diaphragm, which is the muscle that you know most, most other people have heard of. Mm-hmm. So the diaphragm, it's a dome-shaped muscle at the bottom of the rib cage, and when it contracts, it depresses down in the direction of our pelvis, and that helps expand our abdomen and a little bit of our rib cage, and it expands our lungs, and air is just passively pulled into our lungs in order to do that. So when we're at rest, not doing anything or just having a conversation, reading a book, the diaphragm really is the main driver of all of breathing because you don't necessarily need to recruit lots of extra inspiratory muscles if there's no high metabolic demand. If you're not really doing much activity, you don't need to, to be breathing a whole lot. So the diaphragm contracts, it enables inspiration. And then when the diaphragm relaxes, the passive recoil of our lungs and the muscles, tendons, and other connective tissue of our chest wall actually will contract again, and that allows for expiration. So when we're at rest, we don't necessarily recruit any muscles to enable expiration. That just happens passively. Mm -hmm. Now, as we start to increase our activity, that's when we might recruit more muscles to aid in inspiration. And if we're really going really hard, you know, in terms of exercise, or if you're walking or using your wheelchair, trying to get somewhere really fast, like think about, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm late for this meeting. Mm-hmm. You move in whatever way you need to faster to get there, but you don't necessarily have to think about, oh, I need to breathe more too. Mm-hmm. So I might be jumping ahead a little in the conversation, but you know, other muscles such as for inspiration, the external intercostal muscles, which are the muscles that are in between our ribs, those can kick in and actually aid in increasing inspiration. If you're really going hard, some muscles in your neck even, like the scalenes or the sternocleidomastoids, they're called, will also help create a maximal expansion of the abdomen and the chest to drive a maximal inspiration. Is that just by expanding your lung capacity, like moving your ribs outwards for people who don't understand? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so, so that's exactly what it does. It moves your ribs outwards and upwards, actually. So the way that breathing is taught by uh, some physiologists or trainers is that you want an expansion of the belly. So nothing should happen to the chest and the belly should expand out. Hmm. And that's true if, again, we're just quietly breathing, having a soft conversation, reading a book or something like that. But if you need to maximally breathe, whether it's for the sake of exercise or whether it's for the sake of like coughing or something like that, you really need a three-dimensional expansion of the belly, of the chest, the ribs, you know, the whole trunk. And so those muscles that I mentioned before, they'll aid in the expansion of the trunk really is what it is. Okay. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that coughing and how we breathe with that. Because we talked about the uh, accessory muscles for inspiration. Let's talk a little bit about mm-hmm. that expiration. Right. So the accessory muscles for expiration, um, they can be useful for coughing, which I'll get to in just a second. But we actually may also recruit them during very high-intensity exercise when we need to exhale in order to take that next inhalation quickly. Um, and also for speech production, 
or for other communication reasons, we might actually need to recruit some expiratory muscles to help force the air out. So when it comes to coughing, we largely recruit our internal intercostal muscles. So these are different intercostals that are also in between our ribs, but those help to contract the rib cage to pull the rib cage in. And we also will recruit our abdominal muscles as well as our external obliques and our abdominal oblique muscles to create a really forceful, quick compression of our trunks. Because if you think about it, when you cough or even when you sneeze or you just try to sort of clear your throat, you don't just take a deep breath in and then passively sit there and hope that whatever you need to clear out of your throat just clears. You've really got to activate muscles to force the air out quickly and hopefully take that mucus with you or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So it's really muscles all throughout the trunk and that connect to the rib cage that we recruit to both maximally inspire to cough as well as maximally expire to cough or to clear secretions. Mm-hmm. Something that's really interesting, especially for people with spinal cord injury who might have deficits in some of those muscles after an injury is that other muscles can be recruited during maximal breathing or during coughing. So for instance, one of the things that I found looking at my dissertation where we looked at different breathing function in people with spinal cord injury, the erector spinae muscles, the muscles of your lower back, Mm-hmm. can actually kick in and help stabilize the trunk in order to produce that maximal inspiratory or expiratory effort. And even for some people with spinal cord injury, they'll recruit their pectoral muscles in order to try and compress you know, the upper chest to try and force some air out. So it's interesting that you know, if there are deficits for one reason or another, the nervous system is actually pretty good at calling on other muscles to try and get that maximal inspiration, that expiration, or that cough, get that done. Very cool. So when we talk about the control of breathing, let's talk about autonomic versus automatic. What what controls breathing? So many of us have heard that C3, 4, 5 keeps the diaphragm alive, but are there other areas <laughs> of importance? And how does it all tie together? Yeah, so so when it comes to the control of breathing, I always have a hard time wondering where to start because it really is a loop of both descending motor and ascending sensory information that's just constantly it's in constant feedback. You know, every link in the train feeds back to to the beginning and and it just keeps on going. So you mentioned uh Nancy actually autonomic versus automatic. And I think a common misconception is that breathing is a an autonomic function. Mm-hmm. And while it's true that there are some aspects of breathing that are controlled by the autonomic nervous system, such as the size of the alveoli in our lungs, the act of contracting muscles to expand our trunk to get air in or out is largely automatic, but it's not autonomic. So the way that breathing is controlled, C345 keeps the diaphragm alive. What that refers to is at approximately the C3, 4, and 5 levels in our spinal cord, Mm -hmm. there is the phrenic motor nucleus. And the phrenic motor nucleus is the region of our spinal cord where the motor neurons for our phrenic nerve are. And so the phrenic nerve carries signals down to the diaphragm and tells the diaphragm when to contract or when to relax. So how does the phrenic motor nucleus know what to do? For that, we actually have to go up a little bit in the nervous system to the brainstem. So a lot of people think about, you know, the biggest part of the brain, the cerebrum, where the motor cortex is, when they think about the nervous system, or a lot of people think about the spinal cord, and the brainstem is sort of the middle child of the nervous system. Mm-hmm. In that, you know, it's smallest and it's often forgotten about or underappreciated. <laughs> but, uh, you know, nothing nothing about my own being a middle child wrapped into that analogy there. <laughs> so in, the, in our brainstem is where we actually have control centers that automatically tell the phrenic motor nucleus when to tell the diaphragm to fire. So imagine, if you will, in the brainstem, there are different what are called nuclei, and that doesn't necessarily refer to, uh, you know, the center of an atom, but it's analogous in that motor or sensory nuclei refers to groups of neurons. 
And in our brainstem, these groups of neurons are receiving all kinds of sensory information from all over our body. So every time you contract or relax a respiratory muscle, every time your lungs or the skin on your trunk expands, every time that carbon dioxide or oxygen levels in your blood fluctuate, control centers in our brainstem detect that. And they interpret all of this information and then tell those motor centers in the brainstem to fire certain muscles. So when we're at rest, there are certain centers in the brainstem that send signals down to the phrenic motor nucleus at C345 and tell the diaphragm to fire. And that produces a breath. That breath will expand our trunk, create all kinds of sensory feedback. That breath will help regulate gases in our blood and create sensory feedback. That sensory feedback goes up to the brainstem and the loop continues. And that loop is constantly going from the seconds that you come out of your mother until you pass away. So it's kind of amazing that, you know, it's this automatic motor loop that just goes Mm -hmm. for the entire life of, you know, of a person. Now, when it comes to the need for increased breathing, such as, again, heavy exercise or the need to cough or something like that, Mm-hmm. You're, you're sending a lot more sensory information to those brainstem breathing control centers, both with sensory feedback from the trunk, but also simply even thinking about, oh, man, I've got to run fast or I've got to push hard or something like that. Even just thinking about that can also signal those brainstem control centers to elevate your breathing. And what's really interesting is that if you sort of map out those control centers in the brainstem, There are certain control centers specifically just for inspiration. There are certain control centers specifically just for expiration. There's even uh, been identified a motor nucleus just for sighing. Hmm. So one part of your brainstem controls your quiet breathing when you're at rest, and then a different control sensor will kick in if it detects that you need to sigh. Interesting. So in the brainstem is where we have all of these control centers. And then throughout the brainstem and the upper spinal cord, we have other interneurons that help all of these individual control centers communicate and regulate. And if we need to take a big breath at one instance, then these control centers and these interneurons will automatically make that happen without us even having to think about it. So we can voluntarily control our breathing. You know, if we want to, we can blow up a balloon or we can hold a note really long when we're singing or we can, you know, challenge our friends to who can hold our breath the longest. Mm -hmm. So we're able to control those muscles voluntarily to an extent, but the need to stay alive will override everything. So eventually those automatic control centers in the brainstem will take over. Yeah. Mm -hmm and make you breathe how you need to. So while, you know, while C345 keeps the diaphragm alive is uh, partially true, it's a lot more complex than that. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's pretty amazing when you think about how much control goes into simply breathing in and then breathing out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the more and more we dive into what the human body does, we really see how very complex it is and how much mm-hmm. we really don't know. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's talk a little bit about why is breathing impaired following a spinal cord injury? So let's say below the level of C5. Let's just even take C6, for example. So why is breathing impaired? Right. So if uh, if we're talking about a level like C6 or below, breathing will be impaired for a few, a few reasons. And of course, this can vary from one individual to another. Mm-hmm. But by and large, if the phrenic motor nucleus is unaffected or largely unaffected by the injury itself, then the diaphragm will remain intact. So that connection from the phrenic motor nucleus down the nerve to the diaphragm remains intact. So all of those automatic signals from the brainstem to breathe will still get to the diaphragm. What gets tricky then is when you have a need to elevate your breathing. So even if it's something as simple as, you know, someone needs to push themselves in a wheelchair from point A to point B, mm-hmm. that creates a higher metabolic demand than just sitting still. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in order to do that, you're going to need to elevate your breathing to some extent. 
So if you're unable to recruit some of those accessory muscles that I mentioned before, like the intercostals, that can make it difficult to elevate your breathing. Mm -hmm. And that will make it more difficult to meet those metabolic demands. So, you know, for a lot of people with spinal cord injury, if they notice they get out of breath more easily than they used to during the day, Mm-hmm. A lot of that is because those accessory muscles either can't be recruited if the injury is severe enough, or they're just, you know, much weaker than they used to be before, and they're not able to contribute as much. Mm-hmm. Now that gets especially important when we consider the muscles of expiration, because even if you don't have accessory inspiratory muscles, you can, you know, send a fairly strong voluntary signal to your diaphragm and still take a deeper breath than just a resting breath if you need to. Mm-hmm. But if you need to cough or you need to clear your airway, I mean, there's really no way to do that without those expiratory muscles unless you have a cough machine or someone to do an assisted cough with you. Right. All right. That brings us into what is respiratory strength training and how can it help? So let's just start start with the first part of the question is what is respiratory strength training? Yeah. So respiratory strength training really is exactly what it sounds like. It's strengthening the muscles that enable respiration. So when, I, when I've explained this to people before, I do have to take a second to get onto my soapbox that Respiration, (laughs) respiration technically refers to the exchange of gas across a membrane, and that can happen in any area of science, really. Um, So it's not exactly the same as saying ventilation or breathing. But when we talk about respiratory strength training, what what we're really talking about is strengthening the muscles that enable breathing. Mm-hmm. And so that is done using fairly small handheld devices that have different ways of creating resistance. It creates resistance for air getting through a mouthpiece. And so in order to breathe through a respiratory strength training device, you have to breathe harder than you would, again, if you were just sitting and resting. So it's kind of analogous, you know, to strength training for the limbs or any other part of the body. If all I do is stand up and sit down all day under my own body weight, my legs are not going to get any stronger. I need to put an extra load to create an extra demand to force my body to adapt and get it stronger. And Mm -hmm. so that's how respiratory strength training can do that for the muscles that we use for breathing. So is there a difference between endurance training and strength training, so to speak, in terms of respiratory strength training? I know you mentioned in your example, if I stand up and sit down all day long. So for even some of our spinal cord injury clients, like we build endurance first, and then you see the gains in hypertrophy and that kind of thing. Do we ever see hypertrophy of the respiratory muscles? Or is that something that's been studied? So it has been studied. I'm not sure, actually, the extent to the, to which it's been studied in humans. And, and I should, should say, you know, directly the effects of respiratory strength training on hypertrophy of breathing muscles per se. It's mm-hmm. been found in animal models. And there are certainly other interventions. Hypertrophy of the respiratory muscles, the breathing muscles, is possible. And so what we do see from respiratory strength training is that we, you know, we see an increase in the collective strength of all the respiratory muscles put together. So in a, in a clinic, it's quite difficult to measure the strength of just the diaphragm or just mm-hmm. the intercostals. And, you know, that might not be relevant to many people anyway, but using clinical measures, mm-hmm. we can see an increase in the maximal strength of mm-hmm. the muscles of inspiration and expiration. So when it comes to endurance, we also see an increase in endurance in those muscles as well. To get back to your original question, Nancy, so yeah. we see an increase in the strength of the muscles, and we do see a little bit of hypertrophy of those muscles. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to endurance, we can increase the endurance of the breathing muscles as well. It's a little mm-hmm. interesting to think about endurance because, as I said, with the diaphragm at least, that's constantly turning on and off from the from the minute you're born until the minute that you die. Mm-hmm. But the muscles that aid in elevated breathing for the sake of exercise or coughing, we can increase the endurance of those as well. And so when it comes to training for strength versus training for endurance, it's really, you know, how you set up your training. It's just like if I I can use a dumbbell or a barbell to increase the strength or the endurance of pretty much whatever muscle you want. 
Mm-hmm. It's just how you use it, right? It's how you program a workout or or a training regime. And yeah. so it's the same way when it comes to respiratory strength training. Very cool. So I know a lot of people are probably curious about the difference between respiratory strength training and complete injuries and incomplete injuries. Like in research studies, have you found a difference in the ability to do respiratory strength training? For the ability to, like, even to engage in respiratory strength training? Yeah, yeah, to engage in it, to see a difference, um, just what outcomes, that kind of thing. It's an interesting question, the ability to engage in it. I've I've never encountered any difference either in my own experience or in the literature. The, the scientific literature certainly supports that. It doesn't really matter if you have an incomplete versus a complete injury respiratory strength training can work if you do it properly. You know, if you do it a few days a week for a few weeks and you're consistent with it, mm-hmm. you will see an increase in your inspiratory strength and your expiratory strength and other factors that are related to coughing and airway clearance that will reduce your risk of respiratory infections. I think a difference is that with a complete injury, depending on the level of injury, you might have a more limited capacity to recruit extra muscles of elevated inspiration or expiration. And so sometimes you might only be strengthening the muscles that are spared by the injury. And so you could think of it as you're still compensating when you inspire or expire maximally, mm-hmm. but you're strengthening those compensatory pathways, you know, those compensatory mm-hmm. muscles or neural pathways. So ultimately, you're still reaping the benefits. Mm-hmm. It just might not be quite the same as someone who has a less complete injury and has more spared innervation to more muscles. A caveat to that point, a good caveat though, is that when it comes to accessory muscles of breathing, a lot of times having a complete or an incomplete injury isn't necessarily relevant to whether or not those muscles can fire. There's a good amount of literature dating back to the 1960s and even before showing that people with complete cervical injuries if they really put a lot of effort into their breathing, mm-hmm. muscles like the obliques, the erector spinae, the intercostals, those are all capable of firing. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not the same as voluntarily controlling those muscles. So, you know, if someone's abdominals fire when they're maximally inspiring and expiring, that doesn't necessarily mean they can contract their abdominals on demand. Mm-hmm. But the good thing is, If those muscles are capable of activating in any capacity, then it means there's some kind of neural input going to those muscles. And so if you put enough stress on your system by doing respiratory strength training, then even if you don't have voluntary control of those pathways to fire those muscles, you can still train those muscles to fire during a maximal inspiration or a maximal expiration. So that's another way that people with motor complete injuries may benefit from respiratory strength training is you may get increased firing of some of those muscles that are capable of firing, even if you don't have voluntary control. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it kind of goes back to that uh, breathing being more automatic, right? So in a certain situation, circumstance, you're going to get that firing because that's that pattern. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a way that, that you can think of it. And, and I, I'm not aware of any studies out there that have conclusively shown this person with a motor complete injury can still fire these muscles during maximal voluntary breathing, and then those muscles fired more after respiratory strength training. I don't believe that's been conclusively shown, but that's the general thought mm-hmm. based on you know other information that we've gathered about okay, these muscles are capable of firing. These people go through strength training and we see increased maximal inspiration or expiration strength. So theoretically, we can conclude that likely these people have strengthened their compensatory pathways, but we can't rule out muscles below the injury have kicked in and helped as well. Mm-hmm. That's the very long answer to your question. The short answer is <laughs> in- <laughs> incomplete or complete respiratory strength training can benefit you. So let's talk a little bit more about the benefits of respiratory strength training. We've talked about them a little bit, but let's just dive into a few more reasons as to why we should be implementing respiratory strength training as a more, I guess, common intervention for people with spinal cord injuries. 
I'll start first with some of the points that are, you know, more supported by very well researched and published science. Um, the biggest thing I think is that as we've discussed, people with spinal cord injury are at a greater risk for respiratory infections, which of course is on yeah. everybody's mind these days with the pandemic. Yeah. There was a study out of a group in the Netherlands. They did a whole host of studies about this, but one paper in particular showed that maximal inspiratory pressure. So you can think of that as a one rep max test test for how strong you can inhale. Maximal inspiratory pressure was the number one predictor of risk of respiratory infections for people with spinal cord injuries. And they found that at a certain threshold value of max inspiratory pressure, and that threshold value depends on one's level of injury and a few other factors. But there is a certain threshold value at which people are at a significantly lower risk for respiratory infections. So in other words, if you get over a certain threshold, their model, which is based on 400 individuals with spinal cord injury, shows that if you get over this threshold, you have significantly reduced your risk for contracting a severe respiratory infection. And as I said before, regardless of your severity of spinal cord injury, most people can benefit from respiratory strength training. So if nothing else, increasing your maximal inspiratory strength is important. It's, it's something trainable that you can do to actively reduce your risk of contracting a respiratory infection. That's the biggest benefit in my mind to, to engaging in respiratory strength training. We also mentioned earlier, respiratory strength training can be used to increase the endurance of those muscles and can be used to increase the endurance of those muscles, especially during activity. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the respiratory physiology and science world, the term dyspnea is used a lot. And that's just kind of a fancy way of saying breathlessness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, getting out of breath easily, feeling out of breath more often, you know, than you think you should during the day. That's because of reduced endurance overall, just generally reduced cardiovascular and pulmonary fitness, but also reduced endurance of those respiratory muscles. So if you can, if you increase the endurance of those muscles, then you can also cut down on the feeling of dyspnea, the feeling of breathlessness, you know, that... Mm-hmm might come with a long day or something like that. Yeah. So that's another that's another big advantage. There's also some research more recently, uh, most of which has come out of the University of Louisville, actually, that has shown that respiratory strength training, and this is a particular type of respiratory strength training, you need to train inspiration and expiration at the same time. I'm going to word this very precisely. It shows promise for improving autonomic function regulation. So what they did was they tested how quickly people's blood pressure fell down when they brought them from a supine position lying on their back and immediately sat them up. Mm-hmm. They, they looked at how quickly blood pressure drops and then how long it, it stays low for and or how long it takes to get back up to a healthy, safe value. And after a period of training with their respiratory strength training protocol, they found some modest improvements, but there were still improvements in the ability to regulate blood blood pressure during that supine to sitting test. So we can't say from that one study or those couple studies that respiratory strength training will definitely do that, but respiratory strength training does show promise for perhaps aiding in autonomic regulation, especially blood pressure regulation. Mm-hmm. Very cool. All right. Is there an ideal or optimal dose for respiratory strength training? So we know for like muscle training to get hypertrophy, you're doing a specific set reps and times per week. Is there something like that in the research studies that's been kind of developed as that protocol for respiratory strength training? So I guess the the quick answer is no, there aren't necessarily any standards for this is the one best method to do it. Generally speaking, higher amounts of repetitions and a lower number of sets are recommended. Those recommendations mostly come from device companies mm-hmm. that get their recommendations from some studies that have been done. So you'll often find two sets of 20 breaths or two sets of 30 breaths is the optimal 
dosage for respiratory strength training. And that should be done, you know, five to seven days a week. But there are other people in the respiratory physiology world who will tell you two sets of 30 is not strength training. If I went to Nancy and and I said to Nancy, okay, I'm going to increase your leg strength by having you do two sets of 30 barbell squats, she would tell me, get out of my gym. <laughs> because, because that's not how you improve maximal strength. To improve strength, you need to do a lower number of repetitions with higher load. And so... Mm-hmm. Low repetitions with high loads, 10 sets of six or five sets of five, that has also been shown to be effective for improving certain measures of breathing, both in the general population and in people with spinal cord injuries. So really, I think if one uses the device properly and with good effort, you'll get out of it what you put into it. So if you do a higher number of repetitions, you'll probably be training more endurance. And if you do a lower number of repetitions with a higher load, you'll be getting more strength. It's pretty analogous to, you know, traditional strength training for the limbs or for the body as we know it. Mm -hmm. So just like everything else, this is all kind of trial and error to see what works best for you and your lungs, depending on your injury, depending on all these other things. Absolutely. Yeah. Ultimately, I think that's a great way to look at it because the guidelines that have been published by researchers or, you know, from companies, those are useful starting points. And there's certainly nothing wrong with those guidelines. But yeah, depending on your goals and especially depending on your individual characteristics, Mm -hmm. you might need to play around with it a little bit until you find out what works best for you. Yeah, I mean, one thing I've noticed, we've done a little bit of respiratory strength training with some of our clients. And one thing that's interesting that we found is that when you're doing that maximal breathing effort, whether it be inspiration or expiration, after a certain number of reps, we're seeing that lightheadedness and stuff based on the muscles can't keep up with what you're doing. So they need to break after a certain number of reps anyway. So it's listening to your body to really get the most benefit and not, you know, put yourself into a danger zone. Absolutely. You can't load up a barbell or a dumbbell with a maximal amount of weight and go for 30 reps. Like <laughs> it's just yeah. not going to, it's just not going to work whether it's yeah. for respiration or any other strength training. So yeah, those mm-hmm. are good points. Yeah. Just building up that tolerance. And then as you increase it, you can see the increases as well. It's, a, it's almost like a mark of that improvement. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk a little bit about respiratory strength training devices. We've kind of hinted at them, mentioned them. I know there's a few few different ones out on the market and that kind of thing. Do you want to touch a little bit on some of the devices that are out there? Yeah. So when it comes to respiratory strength training devices, as I mentioned earlier, they're small handheld devices. Most of them are inexpensive and they can be used fairly easily either in the home or in the gym, depending on how you want to use them. So there are a number of companies out there that make devices, uh, devices such as the Breather or Power Breathe are two of the bigger companies that make devices. There's also another device called AeroFit. At the end of the day, they're all respiratory strength training devices. Depending on if you want to spend a little bit more money, you can get a device that has, you know, more features or more bells and whistles. But When you're starting off, all you really need is a simple device. It could be made by one of those companies or there are other companies out there. And there are two classes of respiratory strength training devices. There are resistive devices or there are threshold devices. So a resistive device, imagine breathing through a drinking straw a regular drinking straw, and then imagine drinking through a coffee straw that's much, much smaller diameter. So you can think of a resistive device as one that uses an aperture or an opening of different diameters to create more or less resistance on the air you're breathing, mm-hmm. analogous to you know straws of different diameters, like I said. Mm-hmm. So with resistive devices, it's up to the user to put in a certain amount of effort in order to utilize the resistance they've set the device to. So what do I mean by that? So if you are trying to breathe through a small diameter coffee straw, Mm -hmm. if you don't put a lot of effort into it and you decide, okay, I'm just going to take 15 seconds to breathe in, then you're not going to feel a whole lot of resistance on that breath compared to if you decide I'm going to breathe in really quickly, then you're going to feel a lot more resistance, even though the diameter of that, you know, straw or that aperture in the device has not changed. Mm -hmm. 
So that is different from a threshold device, which uses usually uses a uh, a spring loaded stopper that you and you can set the spring to to a different resistance level. The way the threshold works is it will only allow air through the device if you put forth a certain amount of effort. So with a threshold device, you don't have the choice of, oh, I'll just kind of, you know, take an easy, long breath and get my air in. Mm -hmm. That's the part that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you feel like doing. You're either going to breathe strong enough to open the threshold or you're not. Mm-hmm. And so there are there are certain advantages and disadvantages to both types of devices. And I can get into what some of those advantages and disadvantages are if you guys want to. But ultimately, I don't think it's important to choose between a resistive or a threshold device. That shouldn't be the end-all be-all if you're going to choose a device. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, you know, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. Yeah. So if you spend the money on a resistive device and then you think to yourself, I'm just going to take nice, easy breaths to get the air through, then you're not really engaging in any kind of training. (laughs) You know, a lot of it, too, is the resistive devices versus the threshold devices may feel a little bit differently to -hmm. some individuals. And so the device that you're more comfortable using is going to be the better device. Mm -hmm. So there are different classes out there, and they both have their advantages and disadvantages. But if you're using it properly, you'll get the benefits. Mm-hmm. And of the companies you briefly mentioned earlier, do they have classes of both the resistive and threshold devices under each of those companies? Or are there certain companies that are only resistive and only threshold? So I am not aware of any company that makes both uh, types okay. of devices. So the breather, for instance, is a resistive device. Mm-hmm. I believe the AeroFit is resistive as well, whereas something like the Power Breathe is a threshold device. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as a client, somebody with a spinal cord injury, uh, I mean, I'm also severe asthmatic. What would you recommend? Like, what would be better for somebody like me to use? Something with the threshold or the resistive? Or would it be better to do a combination of both? I'll have to think about that one. So so I'll I'll start off by saying this. I guess I can't answer your question directly because I can't think of a reason and I have not read anything that would say resistive versus threshold is better for asthma, you know, because okay. of this reason. Okay. So I can offer a little bit of insight. So chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, mm-hmm. which is structurally kind of similar to asthma in that there's a chronic constriction of the airways. Yeah. So when it comes to people with COPD, both threshold and resistive devices have shown to be beneficial. With a threshold device, you need to put forth a certain amount of effort to get any air in, period. And so that will create an initial amount of constriction on your airways when you go in for an inspiration and may also create an initial amount of dilation of the airways if you're experiencing resisted expiration. But if you put forth a high enough effort with a small enough aperture in a resistive device, you can get a similar effect. So I'm not sure if that answered your question or not, <laughs> but, but it just sort of, you know, just kind of getting into the mechanics a little bit. I don't think there really is a definitive one type is better than the other for a particular condition like that. I will say I mentioned earlier that a group in Louisville has shown some promise with blood pressure and autonomic regulation. Mm -hmm. That study did use threshold devices. Okay. But at the same time, I don't think the same outcomes have been tested using a resistive device. So we can't say for sure, you know, that threshold is necessarily better for that type of function. So again, trial and error, try it. Yeah, and I think it comes back to what you said, Tommy. It just it, it, The devices work differently, right? So threshold, you have to put that amount of air. So it would make sense that it's easier for researchers to use that device to be very precise. Whereas the resistive device, if you're not even up to that to standard, you can scale it back or make it easier or harder based on how much you're breathing or effort you're putting in. Yes, yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. And those are good points for sure. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Tommy, or anything else you'd like to say about respiratory strength training? Yeah. So I think the the biggest thing that I see, or I guess that I don't see, is that I wish more people with spinal cord injuries 
and related neuromuscular disorders, because I talk a lot about spinal cord injury, but really respiratory strength training is good mm-hmm. for almost anybody who has breathing issues. I just wish that more people would do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't see it a lot used in the clinic, and I haven't met a lot of people with spinal cord injuries who do it at home, even though it really is, it's simple, it's relatively cheap, and the research is pretty clear that one way or another, you can improve your breathing strength and reduce your risk of respiratory infections. I think that in the rehab world, in the exercise world, we're almost trained to be attracted to glamorous big, cool-looking devices that, you know, Mm -hmm. do this and that and increase your vertical jump and your bench press and, you know, whatever whatever else it is and all these things, you know, people can see and be impressed by how much somebody can lift over their head. (laughs) So when you see a small handheld device that improves these muscles that make your chest and your belly look bigger when you take a, a deep breath. <laughs> it's, it's just not as glamorous as some of the things we see that produce more obvious visible benefits. Mm-hmm. I've also heard from some people that respiratory strength training is boring. All I do is sit there and breathe through a tube. I don't feel like I'm working hard the way that I do, like I feel when I'm working in the gym. And I get that. But I I think if more people just tried it and stayed consistent with it for a few weeks, you know, they would notice the benefits. And I also think that there's a lot of research that's been done and companies will instruct or advise people to sit comfortably and do your breathing exercises with your strength training device. Mm -hmm. And while that's good, it's all well and good, but it's an incomplete picture of what you can do with the device because... Our muscles need to work harder when we exercise and our muscles need to work in tandem and in a coordinated fashion with the rest of our body when we exercise. So I'm a postdoc right now, but one of the first studies I would love to do when I get my own lab is put people with spinal cord injury through a boxing training program. Sweet. Elevate your heart rate, make your muscles work, challenge your stability in sitting, elevate your breathing through all of that demand. And on top of that, add in some periods of resistive breathing. Mm -hmm. Because when you're exercising, you don't have a choice. You've got to put forth a bigger breathing effort. Mm -hmm. So if you were to combine respiratory strength training with something like boxing or whatever kind of exercise you like to do, Mm -hmm. you know, that might be another way to make it a little bit more exciting and strengthen those muscles. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that you should hit a punching bag for 10 minutes and resist your breathing for 10 minutes straight. That's not what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) But if if you did, you know, 10, 15, 20 second bouts of boxing with resisted breathing, people could get through that. I want to do that study very badly. And if someone else listening right now already has the capacity to do that study, then do it. Because we know that respiratory strength training works We know it's cheap. We know it's easily accessible. And so the challenge is not showing people that it works or can be done. I think the challenge is getting people to actually do it. So if we find ways to make it more interesting, you know, by combining it with other types of exercises, then I think that'll only work to the benefit and it'll get more people doing it and it'll work to their benefit. For sure. I mean, we did a group boxing class earlier this year. And, you know, I've been doing boxing. I was kickboxing before I was paralyzed and then switched to boxing. But you're already doing strength tra- res- uh, respiratory strength training when you're boxing because you're supposed to exhale with every punch, right? And they have, they, like coaches always say, I want to hear you breathe so, shh, 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 with every punch. And personally, I found that that has helped with my respiratory because uh, strength training because it, it makes you focus not only on what your arms are doing and what your core is doing, but your respiratory or respirations as well. And so I'm would love to see the results of this study as well. So maybe we can make this happen somehow. Yeah, that would be awesome. So, and you're right. There are studies out there that have shown that just regular exercise can improve breathing as well. But I think that respiratory strength training works better than just breathing heavily because Mm -hmm. of exercise. And so imagine being, if you had to work just a little bit harder to expire, Mm -hmm. again, it doesn't have to be the entire boxing session, but imagine if there were intervals almost of having to expire a little bit stronger against some resistance, then you're going to make those muscles work harder Yeah, and you'll reap the benefit. Cool. I'm going to try it. Awesome. Let me know how it goes. Okay. (laughs)
All right. I think that wraps it up of all our questions. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, thank, thank you both so much for the opportunity to come and talk to you guys today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you for doing this research and thank you for being so well versed in it and able to explain it very well because we believe in health wholly. And so that means you're breathing and that means your circulatory system, everything all together. And breathing is something that not a lot of people pay attention to. I went to a free meditation workshop a few months ago. And in there, they said, most people know how many cups of water they're drinking, they know how many calories they're eating, you know, some people know by macros, how many grams of fat, protein and carbs they're eating. But not a lot of people know how many liters of air we breathe a day. Right. Or the quality of that, right. And so there they told us that it's about 10,000 liters of air a day that we breathe, but we don't pay attention to it. And breath is the essence of life, right? And without it, like we can't live. So I I find it fascinating that so many people on this planet just breathe automatically and they don't think about what's actually happening. And they, a lot of people just don't think that this can be made better. And so I think this is really good for us to talk about this. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with it being, it's so automatic that you don't have to think about it. And then even if you, even if you are injured or, you know, have a disease somehow and end up with breathing deficits, because it's been so automatic all your life, you Mm -hmm. don't even necessarily realize what those deficits are doing to you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Being able to work on your own breathing is something that I hadn't really thought about until a couple of years ago. And like I said, I've been severe asthmatic since I was about one years old and in and out of the hospital four or five nights a week. Um, I got my own ventilator machine when I was taking every four hours and a bunch of inhalers and steroids for the majority of my life. And it was only just a few years ago where I was kind of like, you know, I need to take my health into my own hands. And this is something that is new to me. And I think it's new to a lot of people. But once you really realize that you are able to control your body and that you can make it better by simply paying attention to these things that we take one for granted and that are so automatic, I think there will be a huge shift in you know the quality of life of people. So I'm really excited about all of this and excited to share this with all of our clients and to see how much better people can be once they start paying attention to this stuff. Awesome. Anything else you want to add, Tony? Nothing I can think of right now. But as always, if you ever have any follow-up questions, let me know. Yeah, for sure we will. Is there somewhere where some people can reach you if they have questions, or do you want them to direct their questions through us? If your clients or other people have questions, you can direct them to me. You've got my my personal email address, so that's fine for right now. Okay, cool. And yeah, we'll put your Instagram handle on the description of this episode so people know. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. We really value your knowledge and your passion for this field. And ever since the first time I met you at that conference, I knew there was something special about you. So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us and for continuing to do this type of work. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. Awesome. Well, thank you, Tommy. And uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us for this episode. And as always, we will have another episode for you in two weeks.